You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce the podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's part one of our interview with NFL Hall of Famer and Super Bowl MVP from my favorite all-time team, the Miami Dolphins, Larry Zonka. Our guests today on the Leaders and Legends podcast, and, and I'll admit, I've been fired up about a lot of guests, Governor Mitch Daniels, obviously my former boss, Mayor Greg Ballard, certainly Secret Service man, Clint Hill, who was on the Kennedy limousine in Dallas in 1963, but, but nobody can I say I am more excited to speak with than my all-time number one favorite football player, and that is Hall of Famer Larry Zonka. His list of accolades is as long as anyone's. A two-time Super Bowl champion, a Super Bowl MVP. He was the NFL's comeback player of the year. All-pro, Pro Bowl. His number 39, one of the most famous numbers in football history, is retired. And in 1987, he was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He has a new book coming out. Head On is the title, and he has been very, very gracious to agree to come on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Zonk, as I've been told to call you, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Robert. That's quite an introduction. I don't. I'm, I'm, I feel like maybe the you know the whistle is going to blow and we're going to start the first quarter or something. I'm getting revved up here. <laughs> well, I want to talk about your book. I've read it. It's terrific. There were several things, of course, as a lifelong Miami Dolphins fan, as we said before the recording started, that I became a Dolphins fan during Super Bowl six when the Dolphins lost the Cowboys, and I've written them ever since. 
through the perfect season and the demolishing of my brother Michael's favorite team, the Minnesota Vikings, in Super Bowl eight. There's several questions I want to talk to you about what I did, what I learned, what I didn't know in the book. But first, there's a few things I want to make sure that I ask you about. Um, you've lost several Dolphins teammates from that 72 season and from your time in the early 70s. How often do you think about them? And do you believe that Bob Kuchenberg in particular is deserving of his place in the Hall of Fame? I miss my fellow teammates uh, more and more as time goes on. Um, the silence is deafening. Uh, you think about them more and more. As you get older, you think about your past life much more than you did back when you were living it. And uh, you start to dwell in the past a little bit. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, but I do it. And I find that when I talk about it, a lot of other people my age or older agree with well, that's a condition that you just naturally inherit with age. I miss them to, to address what you ask about Bob Kuchenberg. I would not be in the Hall of Fame without Bob Kuchenberg. It's as simple as that. For my linemen that, that are in there, Larry Little, Jim Langer, uh, guys certainly deserved it. None deserve it any more than Bob Kuchenberg. For him not to be in there is, uh, well, it's a, it's a real chink in the armor because he was the guy probably more so than any one of the other three that I've missed myself and the other two that I've mentioned should be there because of his intensity, his length of his career, the winning percentage he had, the fact that he played not only tackle, but he played guard, or not only guard, but he played tackle. He played center. He did long snaps. He enjoyed the company of one of the winningest coaches and had one of the greatest percentages of winning in a, during the course of his career of anyone that's in the hall of fame. So obviously I'm a, very much a flag waver for Bob Kuchenberg and certainly should be without him. I'm not in the hall of fame. Neither is Larry little and neither is Jim Lanier. And it would be, would it be fair to say without Bob Kuchenberg, you wouldn't have been voted the most valuable player of super bowl eight. Absolutely. And it comes back to him even more than the sensational job of blocking he did. It comes back to his his mindset. He was the kind of guy who was so intense. You don't realize that, particularly about the offensive lineman. You get very, very few opportunities where, they're, where they have the microphone in front of their face and they can talk and relate to you the intensity of the intelligence of the game. Bob Kuchenberg was one of those guys that was super intelligent about the game. He picked up little little tips, little things that he would notice about the defenders. And Alan Page had one of those ticks. We saw it when we played a year earlier against the Minnesota Vikings. He took it back, talked about it. And Bob Kuchenberg noticed it, took it back, talked about it with his, with his line coach, Monty Clark. And they devised a system where we would, if he gave that tick or showed that giveaway during the course of the game, Bob would call out. Bob Greasy, to Bob Greasy, a number, a one or a three or a zero, whatever it was, I don't recall. And Greasy would immediately change the play to a straight dive to me, and we would go right over the guard and go right where Page was about to vacate. And because of that, uh, 
well, we didn't demonstrated what an effective thing that can be in that Super Bowl eight. We had uh, Paige so upset by the end of the game. He didn't know how we were knowing where he was going, but he knew that wasn't right. And he almost got himself thrown out of the game because he got so belligerent about it. But at the same time, that's smart football. That's more than just backbreaking, straight-ahead drudgery, you know, in the trenches, in the ditches. There, there's also an, an intellect factor. And Bob Kuchenberg had that. If you took the pressure off your hand as a defensive player playing across from him and started going one way or the other, he would notice that. And uh, we capitalized on it. It's called intelligence. The reason I started with this topic is because of there's been several stories. I subscribe to the Miami Herald and the Fort La- Fort Lauderdale Sentinel so I can in Palm Beach. So uh, post so I can keep up on the Dolphins every year. Uh, there's been a lot of coverage of Kuchenberg. Uh, and in reading your book, the other name that I want to mention, because it was such a big part of my childhood, is is Jim Kick. Uh, one question I have is, I don't know that I've ever known who was Butch and who was Sundance. <laughs> I'm not sure that I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think originally Bill Brocher tagged me with uh, Sundance and uh, Jim uh, with the other. I. It, it was kind of back and forth. The gym had a habit of uh, coming up and saying, uh, you know, things like, who are those? Guys? He really liked that movie when it came out. He identified with that movie. When, of course, he went to school out in Wyoming. He's, he had, you know, West was in his, in his blood a little bit, although he hailed from New Jersey. So um, a little bit of the East was in his blood as well. Loved to shoot pool, <laughs> loved to be out West, but out in the open. But during the course of, uh, the early part of our career, he would come back to the huddle and make uh, remarks. And of course, after that movie came out, he loved to come up and look at me after I had a particularly physical encounter and say, uh, who are those guys, huh? <laughs> and, <laughs> and that got related to a reporter named Bill Brocher who put it in the paper and it became a byline. And pretty soon we were Butch and Sundance. And it was because uh, we were roommates and pretty much comrades. We enjoyed each other's company and uh, on the field and off. And uh, as a result, it stuck. It seemed like in a lot of ways, you and Kick kind of personified the the freewheeling and fun 1970s. Johnny Carson show, magazine. Uh, I remember laughing and watching you on the Johnny Carson show when you compared to uh, compared playing to with Shula to being on a chain gang, I think, if that's right. <laughs> that's a pretty good description. I've forgotten that. Yeah. <laughs> but you guys just had a lot of fun together along with a lot of winning football. Um, did he make your life easier, both on and off the field, more fun? Absolutely. Uh, I can't. Uh, that's another thing. It's just like with the passing of Shula, same way. You, you don't realize what you have until it's until it's gone. Um, Jim always had a uh, upbeat, uh, positive, something good to say, something humorous, no matter how bad the situation. When Shula first got there, Coach Shula first got there, we did four days in in 80 and 90 degree heat. And uh, he made the statement once to us that we were going to cut the water breaks out of the practices because we needed to utilize the heat like a camel, become camel-like so that we could outlast our opponents in the Orange Bowl when there was 90-plus degree games. And I 
before I thought I popped off when he said that in the meeting, which you didn't do, by the way, popped off and, and said uh, that that is if we live. And he, said, <laughs> he looked right at me, looked right at me and said, my office after the meeting. And of course, we we hashed that over. So I didn't make remarks in the meetings anymore. But that was the intensity. So to offset that intensity, Kick took on the persona of uh, the Butch Cassidy thing. And he uh, just in the most intense, uh, I can't emphasize this enough, when games were right down to the wire. So he'd make some comment about who are those guys or something and then grin at me, you know, and we, <laughs> it, would, it would cause you to kind of chuckle and just uh, kind of relieve the moment a little bit, if you will. And then the other thing that he that he installed that really made the difference uh, from 71 to 72 uh, was the fact that they, they injected Mercury Morris into the offense. And with other running backs at the time, that could have been very confrontational. Well, it was very confrontational. He told you no longer first team, but you're going to be 50%. You're going to be in and out. That would have caused a rift, particularly there's a black-white issue as well that could be explored there. But this turns out to be a, a complement of both Mercury Morris and Jim Kick because they both, the two of them, personified that whole intensity of that situation. Both of them aspired and wanted to be first team, believed in themselves and thought they should be first team, certainly. And Coach Shula realized that. But he also realized that he had to work something out to get him to go along. Now, most guys would become hateful in that situation and very competitive. Jim and Merck, unusual people. They got to be closer friends through it. Both aspired to be on the field all the time and more often, but at the same time respected each other's integrity. Black-white thing never became a problem. The tremendous competition between the two of them never became a problem. They wanted to win and were willing to sacrifice being number one as a starter in order to obtain victory for the team. Now, if that isn't a definition of teamwork, what is? And then everything that you just described, we're speaking with NFL Hall of Famer and Super Bowl MVP Larry Zonka on the Leaders and Legends podcast. That came through what you just described in the NFL Network program, A Perfect Backfield. I've watched it a couple of times. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that. You got kick who clearly wasn't particularly thrilled to be up in Alaska based on the fact that he flipped you off as soon as he got in the boat, I think, <laughs> <laughs> with Mercury Morris. Uh, what was it like to see those guys again and and to reminisce? Because that friendship, not only between the two of them, but among the three of you, really, really shown. I think certainly enjoying the victories in different Super Bowls brought us uh, very close, uh, the three of us very close together. But after the retirement and all of us going our own way and just getting back to once in a while, get reunited for a uh, get-together weekend was great. But then we had an opportunity where the three of us could go up to Alaska, and I'd have an opportunity to take them on a, on a stream in the outback of Alaska, which is also another dream of mine, fantasy of mine that got realized, was really a thrill. And uh I can't tell you how out of place Mercury Morris and Jim Kick are in the outback of Alaska, but I'll cry. I knew that we only had, because of their late arrival and the way the times worked out, that we only had 24 to 36 hours to film the two of them catching fish in the outback. So we beat it right out to the outback from Anchorage. 
got there and kick looked around and goes this is beautiful but where in the hell are we <laughs> <I> said, <laughs> he looked miserable nowhere. <laughs> way out back in the wood dick chicks and uh well I'll make a long story short i i we managed to get a fish on a pole and jim caught one on the bank and then i tried to tell Merck now Merck we're going to try to hook you up on a fish i want to, i want some footage of you you know fighting this uh this great fish and i got one on the line handed it to him and Merck got so excited when it started the fish started breaking the water jumping that he started running up and down the shore <laughs> we couldn't keep him on <laughs> <laughs> and we had almost holding Jim and I almost had to hold him to get him to bring the fish in because he just, you know, when he gets excited, he just, he, he, he's so fast. He moves so quick. I was afraid he was going to pull the fish right out of the water and nearly did, but they <laughs> both landed a uh, very beautiful uh, trout. And it was, uh, it was a thrill to have them on the show. And, and it was a thrill to have them there in the outback of Alaska, something I'd always dreamed about as a kid and to finally be there and then have my two best friends there with me. Well, that was just a, that was a very good time. You mentioned someone else's name and I want to read a quote and then we can talk about him for a second. He's the most honest, straightforward guy that there is. If he says something, that's what it is. Don Shula wouldn't lie. And that quote is from John Madden. Hmm. Describing Don Shula. Yes, I could tell you one instance of where Shula's integrity as a um, as a coach, as a competitor, as a man uh, rises above all. <laughs> and this isn't something I heard or something someone said. He said to someone else. This is something that happened that I I was key in. We went out to play the Oakland Raiders after being uh, undefeated in 72. Went out early in the season the next year in 73. And we went to the Oakland Stadium, or the stadium we were playing in against the Oakland Raiders and had to share their locker room because the locker room, the visitor's locker room that we were to occupy during the practice that Saturday was being rectified. There was some plumbing work going on or something. So we had to use their locker room, uh, the Raiders' locker room. And when I went, we went over there to do that on Saturday, on the day before the game, get the early practice in. I walked in and walked immediately to Art Toms, who was a defensive tackle that played for them that graduated from Syracuse, along with me. And I was going to leave him a funny note in his locker. In his locker, I found the game report outlining what they were going to do, perf, because he's a defensive player. It outlined each thing that he was going to do, or they were going to do in each of our formations, which is a great thing to know because <laughs> you know what their defense is going to be exactly on down and distance in a particular formation, you show that and then run the opposite. And it would take half or perhaps a quarter before they would realize that we were onto them. When you have that kind of information, I found that in Art Tom's locker. He had left it there inadvertently sticking out of a shoe in the bottom of his locker. I picked it up and looked at it. And about that time, Monty Clark walked by, our offensive line coach, and he said, what's that? And I said, I don't know, Monty. I've never saw it. And I handed it to him. He took a look at it, put it in his pocket, and went to Don Shula. 
We lost that game. It was a very close game. We lost it in the final moments. Like 10 to 7, I think, or maybe? 10 to 7, yeah. But it's the first game we lost in like uh, 17 or 18, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So after the game, I'm sitting in the locker and up walks Monty Clark. And I said, Monty. Yeah. I said, what the hell happened to the game report? We, he said, I took it to Coach Shula, and he said, throw it away. I won't look at it. Throw it away. I won't look at it. You see, cheating, lowering the pressure in a football, I consider cheating. Plotting to do something, I consider cheating. When manna falls from heaven in the form of what they're going to do on down and distance, (laughs) I don't consider that cheating. I consider that an edge. But that's my problem, not anyone else's. Uh, you know, it's one person's integrity. You know, where are the boundaries? I don't know. But I know this. When when someone hands me that, when it falls into my hands, I did not go and seek it. I did not steal it from anyone. I picked it up <laughs> and looked at it and handed it to the goat. But Shu said, tear it up, don't use it. Now, it's an easy thing to talk about integrity and honesty and how you take that. That is proof in the pudding. When I tell you that Don Shula would not cheat, he would rather lose than cheat. And lose, the word lose to Don Shula is is a dirty word. But he'd rather go there than cheat. Cheat is a dirtier word. So the integrity is there. It's not a question of that was my impression of him. I'm giving you the facts on how it happened. First game we lost in 17 games was that game. How did that, I want to ask you about that before I ask two other questions. How did that feel to walk off Oakland or walk off the field and go, wow, this hasn't happened since Super Bowl six. Did it just feel so odd? Yeah, it did feel odd, but that game was fought right down to the wire. And there was almost a degree of humor in it because the Raiders and the Dolphins went back and forth, which one was going to knock the other one out of the playoffs, uh, which one had home field advantage. Any little edge made a huge difference, but they were mirrored images of each other. They were both quality teams. And we enjoyed that. I uh, went to a couple of different Pro Bowls and was uh, had the honor of uh, – of uh, Coach Madden being our coach at those Pro Bowls. And I got tickled because we would kid with each other. He had a great sense of humor. And in that game that we're talking about, I got uh, down towards the end zone and ran off on the other side. And uh, Coach Madden, back then you could exit the ball the ball field on the other the opponent's side, but you couldn't do it. Well, there were some restrictions, but you could still exit that side. Now you can't. But I went off on their side, and Coach Madden and his two assistant coaches were in a huddle talking about what they were going to do on the extra point because we had just scored. And I, I was right there, so I just got in the huddle with them. And John, uh, who had had me at a couple of Pro Bowls, and we were pretty good friends, he's talking to his coaches real seriously. He looks over and goes, Zaka! <laughs> <laughs> he throws his hands up, and he runs out to the referee. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I just enjoyed it. John had a sense of humor, and so did Don Shula. Don Shula was a little, maybe his sense of humor is a little harder to uncover than John Madden's, but it was there, and it would come out sometimes at great times. So when Coach Shula called Bill Belichick, Belichick, because of all the shenanigans the Patriots have pulled 
during the past several years. What did you think of that? Did you just shake your head and go, that's Coach Shula? I thought that's Coach Shula, and what he said is true. There it is. You know, you got caught. So if you have knowledge of it, when Shula said to me, or said to Coach Clark, tear it up, throw it away, throw it in the trash can, get rid of it. I don't want to look at it. We are not going to to follow that program. That's proof in the pudding. There wasn't, that wasn't in front of anyone. That wasn't in front of the camera. That wasn't that, you know, there was a perfect opportunity to take what had been laid in front of you as a gift. You did not conspire to do that. It just fell right into your lap. Even when it fell into his lap, he wouldn't, wouldn't do it. Now, that is proof in the pudding for me. I'm not claiming any degree of fame in this. I come out looking a little worse for wearing. You're an old military. You know, when an edge is handed to you, you're not going to question why. You're going to use it and then go. All right. Now, to conspire, to steal it, to do something, to cheat, you know, to manipulate the, the game in order to make it one-sided, that's, in my degree, that in my mind, that's cheating. When manna falls from heaven out of a shoe and says, this is the formation, I'm tempted to use it, wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's special order 191 that the Union troops found the Confederate uh, General Robert E. Lee's order before the Battle of Antietam, and they sure used that. McClellan didn't use it very well, but they used it. Did Coach Madden ever find out that it was that you all found that? I said it publicly. I didn't hide the fact. I don't have any, I don't live under any illusions. I know where the boundaries lie for me. If I step across, I'm willing to say, yes, I stepped across. You know, it fell into my lap. I was going to use it, but he chose not to. Madden kidded about it. And uh, I think only ever once that uh, I saw John well after we were both retired, we we're doing the Miller Light All Star trek. And, uh, Coach Madden was involved in that, and we had a lot of fun drinking Miller Lite and telling telling tales on each other, and he brought that up one time and said, is it true? And I said, yes, John, it's uh, exactly true. And he said, you know, I've always admired Don, and, uh, uh, well, it was a moment. You did lose that game to the Raiders in the 73 season, but, but during that year the Dolphins went 12 and 2 a lot of arguments are made that the 73 Dolphins were better than the 72 undefeated Dolphins would love for you to weigh in on that but you got your revenge how happy were you when the Raiders came to Miami for the AFC championship game that that year (laughs) it's funny what goes around comes around in uh that was uh, I was I was delighted to take it down. Um, football, you know, that's what you just said. What goes around comes around. That's just that's just the whole the whole deal. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. But you know, you, there's always tomorrow. That's a great thing about sports. That's a great thing about having a a game. You know, having the the world of professional football. I think it's uh, it's a it, it's an enhancement of what we start in junior high or even in grade school now with our, with our children. And it's, it's learning to go all out on the field, but have still be sympathetic to the other side of the, of the line of scrimmage. And uh, it teaches us, I, I believe it teaches us how to be a little better Americans. And that's a, 
That's what it's all about, after all. And at the same time, it develops teamwork. And obviously, in, in these trying times, we need more teamwork than ever. Mm-hmm. That 1970, there you could argue that there were five great teams or franchises of the 70s. The Vikings, the Steelers, the Raiders, the Cowboys, and the Dolphins. In 1973... Miami beat the Steelers, the Raiders, the Cowboys, and the Vikings. Do you believe the 73 Dolphins were, quote-unquote, better than the 72 Dolphins? Well, it depends on your definition. I think it depends on the definition of better. If if you say better and you mean that we were um, stronger, yes, then we were better. Because we had more depth, yes, we were better. But if you use the term stronger in the sense of of uh, intensity, which reflects how into the game you are and how how much you care about the game, then the 72 Dolphins are a little better than the 73 Dolphins. But if, if you talk about the power and being overpowering the the other teams and being more dominant on the field physically, certainly the 73 team is stronger than the 72 team. So in one respect, I will, I would admit that the 73 team is stronger in the sense that they were able to flex their muscle and win by a bigger score. But on the other hand, I'd have to say that the definition of intensity becomes in 72, which made us a little better, was intelligence. It was the factor. Shula called it the winning edge. It it was the little bit of difference of knowledge that would make the difference. And and I can give you a perfect instance of it. We had a rookie named Charlie Babb in Cleveland when we played Cleveland Browns during the 72 season. He noticed in watching the special special, uh, teams films, that their punter made a little funny gesture every once in a while when he was going to punt. He'd take a shorter step or step to his side, whatever it was. Charlie was on that team as a rookie and knew on the defense uh, special teams uh, punt block team and noticed that, went to the coaches, took it to the coaches, and they told him, when you see it, execute it. They gave him the go. And in that game, against Cleveland, which we probably would have lost if this wouldn't have happened. Charlie Babb blocks that punt and recovers it and scores. And it made the difference in us winning the game. Now, that's just one. There's probably seven or eight other instances if I went through and looked at the films again, I could give you of where a guy that was only on the field here or there made the difference in us going on to be undefeated. And that's that winning edge, that intensity I talk about. Whether it was a first-team guy, Larry Little, leaning around the end, you know, leading Mercury Morris around the end, or whether it was Charlie Babb in there on just a special teams play, it was that intensity, that winning edge, and that's what Shula put on our rings that we wear today, the winning edge, made the difference in that that happening or not happening. Throw in the example of Larry Seipel and the fake punt in the 1972 championship game at Three River Stadium against the Steelers. Is it fair to say that turned that game around just a tad? Oh, can you see me? If you can see me, I get 
when we start to talk about this, I get uneasy just thinking about this because this <laughs> is, that was a moment. Oh my gosh, to be there! We're in the Steelers stadium. I mean, you know, there's maybe uh, 15 Dolphin fans in the whole place, and they're trying to keep their heads covered. <laughs> when Seipel notices in the films, he and the special teams coach notice, uh, you know, that they're trying to set up a return for a, a guy, uh, oh, Frenchy Fuqua. Frenchy Fuqua. I remember that name. Frenchy Fuqua. I was a great punt returner for the Steelers. And they, they delighted in setting up a return. And they get so into this setting up the return that they forgot to make sure the punt got kicked. And Seipel noticed it. He noticed the spot man. They call him the spot man that makes sure the ball gets kicked before anybody leaves. He's usually a defensive end. And I won't hang it on anybody by name because I don't remember who it was. <laughs> but whoever it was turned to go set up the wall for the return and everybody's running away from Seipel, and he still got the ball in his hand as a kicker. And, and he he took the moment. He ran down the field, and literally in that stadium, there were fans up above me on the 40-yard line hollering, turn around at the Steelers as they're setting up this wall. As they're running and setting up the wall, Seipel's running behind them. Like, they're, they're blocking for Seipel. And these players are hollering, turn around. <laughs> What a moment! <laughs> in a turning point. In so that, when he, so when he took off, did your eyes get big? Like, did you know that that Seipel had discovered this flaw, or did you think I, he was just winging it? I don't know how big my eyes were, but I was having shrinkage in a couple of departments. <laughs> it tightened everything up. <laughs> I couldn't believe that he was taking off with that ball because if it doesn't work, oh my gosh, you know, I don't think he's going home on the bus with us. So, but instead he's literally running down like the Steelers are blocking for him and uh, forming the wall and ran right down in front of the, uh, the bench where we were standing and got us the first down and got us in position. That's how finite it gets sometimes. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is NFL Hall of Famer and Super Bowl MVP, Larry Zonka. We're talking with him about his superb book. And if you love the football of the 1970s, please pick it up. The book is called Head On, a Memoir. Who was the best player you played against? And who was the best player you played with? Oh, boy. Well, obviously, you know, you say played with uh, Jim Kick, my teammate, my roommate, my best friend. You know, I'd be hard-pressed to name somebody else on the offense. But in the 72 team, I'd say be on the offensive side of it, uh, uh, Jim Kick and Earl Morrill were uh, – Earl came to us that year and was kind of one of the over-the-hill gang and – he and I would sit in the sauna for hours because Shula gave us ridiculously low weights. In my case, I could understand it. You don't want a fat fullback. But in, in Earl's case, for him to lose one or two pounds on Wednesday night as a backup quarterback was a little bit ludicrous. And <laughs> But I think Shula's thought on that was to get some of the most key players into that sauna and spend time together. Uh, something that players today, I noticed, don't do a whole lot. Or it's my suspicion anyway, that they don't do as much as we did. 
And that is to get to really know each other, become a, a very, uh, I don't know, adherent group. Mm-hmm. Cohesive. By knowing each other, you know, uh, very well and knowing each other's families well. And by spending an hour or two suffering at the heat in a sauna, you get you get to know that. Um, and I, I I would say Earl, the other of uh, of on the offense, certainly on the defense, uh, the guy I admired the most, uh, Manny Fernandez. Uh, Seventeen just, tackles, nineteen tackles in Super Bowl seven. Which one was it? He, you know, that's hard to believe. I don't. You know, that's where's that stat. I don't know where that's, that's like double anything anybody does, but it, he was just a dominant player that day. He decided to play and oh my gosh, what a, what a job he did. And uh, then for not, you know, of course, Jake Scott made the great interception or two greatest interceptions and really changed the course of the game. But so did Manny Fernandez. So how do you pick an MVP in that? that guy? How do you do without sliding the other? But if you're talking about guys that were just, uh, the superbness of the team, the essence of the team, Earl Morrill, Manny Fernandez, Jim Kick. Jim Kick and Mercury Morris getting along when they were forced together and both wanted to be starters and both wanted to perform. The intensity um, versus the hostility of competition uh, comes it becomes an adher- adherent when you care more about victory and moving the team forward as a team than you do about your individual self to find that many people willing to give that up, to give that individualism up in order, particularly kick and, and Morris Earl moral, same thing. You know, he was right there when it came his time, when he ran onto the field, he was ready. And that made the difference. Well, look, let me ask you another question along that theme, because to me, there's never been a more, more unselfish football player relative to his skill level than Paul Warfield. Mm. <laughs> he could have been on any one of, you know, one of the 28 or 30 or however many teams there were back in the early 70s. And with, you know, throwing the ball being kind of in vogue, he could have had unbelievable stats. And yet he came to the Dolphins knowing it was a run first team. And obviously he made the Hall of Fame anyway and goes down as one of the greatest receivers of all time. But he's probably, you know, on the sideline or by the numbers watching you run the ball going, you know, this isn't a bad way to win a Super Bowl ring. What did Greasy pass in Super Bowl eight? Twelve times? Yeah. Something like that. What do you think of Paul Warfield? I'll tell you one story about Paul Warfield. Keep in mind now, Warfield came to us in 69 before Shula came to us. Warfield came to us only 10 days, but, but it was nevertheless, <laughs> that was the fact. Warfield was coming to us. Warfield, uh, I'm sure if you ask him, and all, I've never asked him, I've never heard him say, but I would think that he was not the happiest guy in the world if he was going to the losing his team in the NFL at the time, which was us and after the 69 season. But he, we get him in 70 and the same time we get Shula. And here's where this all laces together. Here's where the unit, here's what, Here's the definition of the character of Paul Warfield and what a great, what a great asset he is. And by the way, he's one of the finest, most intelligent, classiest guys I've ever met in my life. I would have to say Paul Warfield's number one. He's he's got more class. Well, I get into that. I'll, 
Warfield came to us in 69, so did, and Shula came to us there shortly after. I wasn't hopeful because it looked like we were developing a power line and I was getting to carry the ball. Never crossed, crossed my mind how I could influence Paul Warfield's catching the ball or influence how he was performing or whether he would be jealous because we were a ball-dominant field, uh, ball-control team. But one day in 1970, during a game in the early part of the season, I broke through and there was a defensive back that had been kind of working me over a little bit. And instead of instead of running straight ahead and getting the last two yards, I'm dragging a mass of people with me, you know, <laughs> or hanging on to me. I'm not dragging, they're hanging on to me. But I constitute about 1,300 pounds of momentum looking for a place to crash. And I see this defensive back coming up and he's going to do me the favor of sticking me in the gizzard as I'm going down. So at the last instant, instead of going for the yardage, I just turn head on into him. And all 1,800 pounds hits him full in the throat with my helmet in the lead. Knocks him sideways, his eyeballs are crossed. They help him up off the back of the huddle. And here's the important part. Here's where it all comes into play. <laughs> in the huddle, I stood next. Paul Warfield stood right next to me. And we are friends and comrades and our Lockers were next to each other in a locker room. I, I enjoyed Paul's company. I, I can't speak for him. I hope he enjoyed mine. But Paul sees me hit this guy. And he sees the guy get up and the guy's kind of wavery. And, you know, he's a he's a corner. He's a cornerback is what he is. When I come back to the huddle, Warfield looks right at me and goes, thanks, son. I said, I didn't know what he's talking about. I said, I started the question, but Greasy was calling to play. On the next play, Warf uh, on that play, Warfield leans over and tells Greasy something, and they, they run a pass. He gets this guy to the white side of the field one-on-one, -on -one, and he screws him right into the ground because the guy's cross-eyed. <laughs> That's when the relationship, you see where I'm going? You know, you're you're an old military. You know what I'm talking about. When, you know, those guys in the ditch sometimes lay the path for that cannon to come on. <laughs> when I when I knocked, whenever after that, would you see me turn and try to hit a cornerback? Always look, because the next play, as often as not, was, was something where Warfield was trying to get one-on-one -on -one with a guy that I just hit. Because I've got a 40 to 60-pound advantage over most of those cornerbacks that were coming up to hit late. And when he said, thanks, Zonk, it dawned on me what it was all about. One hand washes the other. We're in this together. And that uh, that's just closed that team unity a little tighter. The best players you played against, I remember I've watched, I think, every NFL Films segment on you. And one of my favorite quotes is when Mean Joe Green compared tackling you to trying to stop a truck that's on an incline and the brake isn't working and there's just no way. And Dwight White, from the steel curtain says, I remember shots I took on him one on one and I just couldn't bring him down. Hey, does that does that give you some pride in terms of your toughness and your diligence as a runner to know that these these great men, these including, I mean, Mean Joe Green, one of the greatest players of all time, uh, holds you in such high regard? That's A. And B, uh, did you ever run over your friend Dick Buckus? <laughs> uh. Well, to answer, uh, when you talk about Joe Green and the quality of those individuals, for me to sit here and, and, and let you go on about that and then to say that, that uh, 
Yeah, that was true. Well, rarely did I ever have to take on either of those two entities that you talked about on the defensive line of the Steelers one-on-one without someone interfering before I got there. So I appreciate what Joe Green said about me, but at the same time, Joe Green tackled me one-on-one several times vividly that I remember. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you get together later on and we all get to be a bunch of old gray-haired farts and we get together and we start talking at the Hall of Fame and different games come up and what used to make everybody get up and growl now gets a peal of real laughter because we all know the truth. (laughs) (laughs) If you have a well coordinated offensive line in front of you yes you can get a shot here and there on joe green and yes you can get a shot on dick but to go one-on-one you know one time you'll win probably the defense having the upper hand i would say you know i could win one but then i was going to lose two of those same situations later on (laughs) so it's tit for tat uh with butkus butkus hit me uh, well, Ray Nitschke comes to mind, another great one from uh, Green Bay, you know, yes, 66. Sir. Yeah, Nitschke. And at first, I was in the college All-Star game, lined up against him. Gary Beban's a quarterback for the All-Stars, turns around, looks at me like I want the ball, and I'm looking at him grinning. And I look over, and Nitschke's looking right at us. He's an old pro, and he knows what's going to happen. He knows that I'm going to get the ball and run right there, and there's no way out of town. I'm going to have to take it because Beavins called. <laughs> I take it and run, I figure, well, one-on-one, I'm going to hit him as hard as I can, and I did. And I got two yards, and Nitschke jumped up, patted me on the back, and said, that was great, Zonk. He said, I like you. Come back and see me some more. And I thought, that's all I got, pal. <laughs> I'll tell you one story you about think that- One story about Butkus. He was a neighbor of mine. We had the same agent. We ended up, he bought a house down in Florida. Make a long story short, he bought a pony for his daughter, brought it over. I grew up on a farm. Butkus grew up in Chicago. He didn't know anything about ponies. He's got this Shetland pony and he's trying to bring it over so his little girl can get on it and ride it. And this Shetland pony doesn't know Butkus from anybody <laughs> and doesn't like Dick for some reason. <laughs> Puts his ears back, and I saw him getting kind of rough with it on the halter, and it takes a chunk. It bites a chunk right out of his arm. And I saw Dick Butkus open hand slap this Shetland pony and knock it off his feet. Now, I grew up in the country, and I handled a lot of horses. I handled a lot of donkeys. I handled a lot of pony. I never saw anyone, anyone, anywhere knock a Shetland pony off its feet with an open hand. His little girl started crying and he picked her up and was cuddling her and walking and talking. And the pony got up and was cross-eyed and was ready to do whatever he wanted. So when I talked to you about trying to take buckets on one-on-one, I saw that. <laughs> I saw that happen. <laughs> so Did it uh, remind you of Alex Karras in the uh, Blazing oh, Saddles where he knocks out the horse? Yes, exactly. That's That's my point. But it wasn't done with camera trickery. I watched Butkus do it open hand. Think about that. <laughs> do you you mentioned in the the perfect backfield that growing up on a farm, Larry Zonka grew up on a farm in Stowe, Ohio. He's born on Christmas Day, so we're two Capricorns here. I was born on December twenty second. Um, do you think growing up on a farm made you tougher? It gave you the mindset, the physicality the ability to absorb significant pain 
that made you eventually a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. I think the the primary ingredient there is to grow up in that scenario that you just alluded to and be totally unaware of how it relates to sports. In other words, you're, it's just your world. You don't question it. You grow up in it. You become not conditioned to be tough. You become tough because it has to be a second nature. My mother, God rest her soul, she is five foot two, weighed about 113 pounds. I watched a Jersey cow when I was five years old, drag her around hanging onto a rope <laughs> because we didn't have fences <laughs> yet. Right after World War II, we had a little farm. Dad came back from the war, couldn't afford a farm. We got a farm. He grew up in Pennsylvania on a big farm, wanted to have that kind of scenario for us. And he did. And it worked. But we were very poor and we had a small farm in between huge dairy farms. We had to take care of the cattle, all the all the livestock ourselves. Mom grew up in the city. She did not know about a cow. And as a result, was drug around. I witnessed that. But what my point is, when you grow up in the country, tough is as tough does. <laughs> That's it's not it's not something you teach yourself. It's it's what you become. You live it from the time you get up in the morning till the time you go to bed at night. It's it's having to pump water into a bucket, you know, with a with a pump out of a well. It was it was all it was all a tough survival thing that you just did. And it, it, you didn't realize that you were becoming tougher than most because I never was aware of any other lifestyle than that. So when I look back at it later on and you get on the field and somebody hits you in the nose and your nose gets cracked and pushed across your face, you just pull it back in the right spot and you go on. They shove a little cotton up, up your nose and you go on. It's not the end of the world, you you know. I, I never worried too much about my looks, and obviously it was a reason to. So there you go. But my point is that if you grow up tough by the surroundings, as the surroundings change, you become the one that's that's dealing that out. You, you follow where I'm going with this? The bully. Because, well, to yes, I, I hesitate to use the word bully because I I never cared for bullies, but I got handled at the hands of, or suffered at the hands of bullies quite a bit. Then dad taught me how to block with a left and throw a right and things changed. It's a great My stories in your book about that. Really good stories about how those kids picked on you. And then all of a sudden they didn't pick on you anymore. But you know, and I know growing up in the country makes you a little tougher just because of the way you have to have to handle animals the way you have to handle living out in the back and you have to walk to the school bus a mile in the cold mm -hmm. and the heat, just little things that add up that make you a lot tougher. Those little things that add up, those little bits of tough each day that wear on you, it makes you conditioned to when you finally land on the beach, you know which way to run. And was that something you looked back on, you know, when you were hanging out with Burt Reynolds or when you were getting your gold NFL Hall of Fame jacket, or you look at your Super Bowl ring, or, you know, the celebrity that you experienced in not only in the 70s, but to this day, that you're like, wow, I was just a farm kid from Stowe, Ohio, and I had to go out and use the outhouse. And now I here I am at the Hall of Fame and in Canton's not that far from where I grew up. And I snuck out there in 1962 and saw it in the inaugural class and got to meet Bronco Nogurski, kinda. 
kind but of- do you look back at that and go, wow, what a life? Who'd have thought? I, at the time I lived it, I didn't appreciate it as a kid. I would go to school and see other kids that had an easier situation. They didn't have to shovel the driveway. They didn't have to pour uh, pump water into buckets and carry it to cattle. They didn't have to do it. You know, they just got up and went to school. And I thought, man, that that's, I really wish I could do that. But you didn't realize how, what an ingrained in made you control your body, I guess is what is, is what I'm getting at here. I decided early on, about five years old, that I controlled my destiny, that I had a say-so in how things were going to happen because I had a voice in it, because I was the guy that was pumping the water to carry it down to the cow. The cow didn't get the water. It didn't get the drink. All right. So I figured, you know, the cow owes me, (laughs) you know, it, it becomes it becomes you being a working piece of the puzzle. In the uh, NFL of football life, the perfect backfield, um, there's a fa- I think it's a famous quote or at least a funny quote. So is it true when Jim Kick called you Shula's boy and said you're both Hungarian uh, and you're both ugly? No wonder you're such good friends. <laughs> Kick had a way of putting things that I just hadn't thought about, you know. <laughs> he, uh, <clears throat> he loved to call me uh, – Shula's boy or Shula's relative or your daddy. You refer to Shula as my daddy. And, <laughs> and you Frank frankly used to piss me off because I was coming back and bitching to kick about what Shula was, whatever thing was going down at the time. And instead of being sympathetic, he'd throw that right back at me. Like here, hell you're one of them, you know? So, so <laughs> I get no, uh, I don't know. I got no, partnership in the thing he wouldn't side in with me and you know he just always he just kind of floated around the edge all the time and well that was Jim that's the way he uh he didn't let things get to him real bad you know I Shula would get under my I had a Hungarian temper just like he did but he had the power and when the little things he'd make us do like the water break thing or running the gassers after practice in 90 degree heat, you know, things like that just irked the hell out of me and kick would kind of, he would get irked and he would complain, but rarely, but he just kind of float through that. He just didn't let it bother him. I'd still be bitching at it two bitching about it two hours later and kick <laughs> had already forgotten it happened. That's the difference right there. You have been listening to leaders and legends part one of our interview with NFL Hall of Famer and Super Bowl MVP Larry Zonka, author of Head On, a memoir. Leaders and Legends is presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. 
you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.